Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. How's your week been? Hey, Laura. My week's been going really well. Thank you. I've been busy preparing for a webinar that I'm hosting for the grocer in July. Um, It's all about online grocery after COVID. And it's got some really interesting speakers, including from Waitrose and Uber Eats. So I'm busy preparing for that. Um, actually, I will put a link in the show notes as well. So um, if you're listening to this and you're interested in online grocery and how it's going to develop after the pandemic, um, you might very well want to give that a listen. How's your week been? Yeah, good week. Thank you. And I've signed up for your webinar, so I'll be in the good books. Um, I've been finalising um, a global report for the amount of women that are working in the meat sector. As part of my uh, role of chairing Meat Business Women, we've realised that we haven't got any data on how many women work in the sector across the territories that we operate. Uh, so we've commissioned a, a piece of primary research which will um, present uh, in October at our next conference. So it's really exciting to see the first cut of data coming out of that and uh, it'll be really interesting to the meat sector, I'm sure. Absolutely. I can't wait to um, to hear you talk about some of those figures. As you say, it's that primary research that's really important just to understand what sort of scale of challenge you're even dealing with. So yeah, I'm very excited to hear that's getting underway. So we're on week 10 of the pick list. I don't know how that's happened, but we've blinked and we've done it. So we're in double figures already. Um, and we've got some fantastic articles this week, haven't we? We do. So my first pick this week is from Quartz, and it's part of a series of interviews they have done with key figures in all sorts of industry sectors about coronavirus and the impact that's had on their particular sector. The one that caught my eye in particular, partly because of that webinar that I'm working on, um, is an interview called Soren Bjorn says online grocery shopping is here to stay. Soren Bjorn is the president of Driscoll's, the fresh berry supplier. Um, Their headquarter is in the US, but they have operations here in the UK, and they're a major supplier of berries to major UK supermarkets as well. So why does Soren Bjorn think online grocery is here to stay? Or in particular, why does he think some of the increased levels of online grocery shopping we've been seeing as a result of the pandemic are here to stay? And he's putting forward a few quite interesting arguments. Um, At the heart, what he's saying is that we're seeing a shift in consumer attitudes around buying fresh produce in particular. He seems to think that a big barrier to adoption previously was around those fresh categories. Consumers just didn't really trust the process that much. They liked being able to see exactly which apple you might get or which punnet of berries. Um, And now they, in many cases, had to buy online. Many people have tried online grocery because it's become the only or the most convenient option for them. And by and large, he says, 
Um, consumer experience seems to have been pretty good on fresh produce. So that's starting to dispel some of those concerns that people may have had. And he also thinks that that could have a really interesting knock-on effect, not just on online grocery and the sorts of um, adoption levels we're likely to see in the future, but in also totally unrelated areas. He talks about the impact on packaging, for example. Berries, punnets typically tend to be plastic punnets. And one of the reasons for that is that people like seeing the berries before they buy them. But if you're now increasingly buying online where you don't see the particular punnet that you're buying anyway, might there be less of a need for some of that plastic packaging? And is that potentially going to accelerate moves away from plastic packaging um, in, in sectors like berries and sectors like fresh produce more generally? He also uh, raises an interesting point about branding. And I think this is about produce um, berries as much as other parts of the fresh category. He reckons if you have more people buying online, different points of differentiation might become more important. As we know, fresh produce is pretty much own label through and through, very few brands. But if you have more consumers buying online, having a brand actually becomes something quite tangible that makes sense in an online environment and might actually help to reassure consumers about some of those concerns about, you know, not being able to pick the exact punnet or, or knowing exactly which bit of produce is going to be picked for you. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting point and it immediately made me think of you and your work with the meat industry because of course meat does also face similar challenges around you know, high levels of, of own label. Um, it's really quite tough to, to develop strong brands around primary produce. Is that shift to online grocery shopping potentially going to make it a little bit easier for, for meat suppliers to, to push branding as well. What really struck, to, struck me about the article was all about trust, wasn't it? And actually, uh, we've had this issue about trust, as you say, because you, um, people have been concerned about being able to pick the steak that they want or the berries that they want uh, because they haven't uh, had that eyes on online before but it makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs that that bottom <laughs> couple of layers have been stripped out during the pandemic and actually I just want to feed my family and I don't mind if there's a you know that I don't get to see those berries beforehand or I don't get to to hand select my steak and actually now people have tried that through um, maybe something that they didn't want, wouldn't have done naturally and, and through force uh, rather than choice actually they're now comfortable with it and that, that that's really interesting and I think you know packaging has been the salesman on the shelf you know when, when I did my marketing degree we did a whole chunk of um, content on packaging but that's so different now isn't it and as you say the salesman on the shelf for packaging will be the case for online and it needs to be a stronger probably branded proposition and what does that mean for the packaging that it comes in um, and you think 
for the meat sector in particular, you know, to get into skin pack took quite a long time and there was concerns about would consumers like that because of the, the discoloration on the meat. Uh, but that would be a huge opportunity for even more products to be probably in a longer life packaging because it doesn't really matter what it looks like because it's coming out of a dark store and the branding's all about what's online as long as there's maybe good uh, cooking recipe information when, when the product comes. Totally. And I think the point you make about packaging is is well made. You do wonder whether, you know, with that shift towards online, whether packaging is going to be even more about performance more than necessarily aesthetic and what that means for the kinds of packaging materials that we're going to see. I would expect we're going to start seeing suppliers um, think much, much harder about having um, packaging options that are optimised for, for e-commerce. And I wonder when you, you talk that through about, I like that performance over aesthetics, uh, for, and we've spoken about it on previous shows, haven't we? For example, Tesco is still picking a lot of their online uh, orders in store. So until they go to dark stores or until they're, you know, through a regional distribution centre or whatever they may be doing, then the I guess suppliers won't want to run too necessarily unless it's a high volume item. So it'll be a bit chicken and egg, won't it? And, and depending on how that product is picked. I guess at some point there's going to be a tipping point where optimizing for e-commerce is going to become important enough that it's it's worth the investment and worth the complexity for suppliers and yeah. you know judging by by what someone like like Soren Bjorn is saying I mean he certainly seems to be confident that what we have gone through and the way consumer behavior has has shifted in res- um, in response to the pandemic may well be um, a tipping point of some sort what's your first pick for us this week So my first pick is from the Wall Street Journal and it's why the American consumer has fewer choices, maybe for good. And this is a a, quite a long read, but a really enjoyable one talking through how ranges have been rationalised as as we know in the wake of of the pandemic, Um, but looking through the the United States lens. So it gives some really interesting stats and um, the first one of which is the average number of different items sold was down 7.3% over the weeks ending June the 13th, uh, Nielsen are saying, for the US. Um, and some categories, such as baby care, bakery, meat, fell as much as 30% earlier in the pandemic. And as we know, a, a lot of retailers did rationalise their range and encouraged by the supply base as well to keep keep uh, shelves stocked uh, with key items. But what the article does, it goes through in a little bit more detail, actually, have we being tried to be too much to all consumers. So um, the one of the examples it gives uh, is PepsiCo, for example, uh, and it said the company stopped producing a fifth of its products during the COVID-19 crisis, including lightly salted Lay's potatoes, big fan of them. Um, And then he said uh, him and his colleagues spoke to grocery executives as the pandemic deepened, determining that PepsiCo would focus on its fastest selling products. Uh, And then it goes on to say that actually this is now an opportunity to discontinue some of those items. And um, he also says um, there are some no regret moves. So this is Steve Williams from CEO of PepsiCo. So it's giving some of these um, FMCG companies permission to stop some of this range extension that they've done 
to a huge um, amount over the years to try and please uh, retailers, to try and keep the shelf space and fixture uh, category uh, going and, and, and in actually have the try to go too far. Um, there's further examples uh, in the article which uh, I, I really enjoyed and it said, for example, in 2018, the average US food rate retailer stocked about 33,000 different items, which is probably quite comparable with a, uh, a Tesco or a JS here, compared to roughly 9,000 in 1975, according to the Food Industry Association. And Walmart Inc. super centers typically stock 120,000 items. Um, it's just phenomenal, isn't it? You think all these different range extensions and, and, and a good one and you think, well, we want choice, don't we? And, you know, it's nice depending on if you've got um, maybe a dietary requirement or something that you particularly want uh, from a range. But one thing I think maybe has gone a bridge too far is toilet tissue. And as we know, um, that was under huge demand at the beginning of the pandemic and, and the, the article pulls that out and it says some IGA um, in grocery stores now offer only four choices of toilet paper. A few months ago, before the coronavirus pandemic, IGA's uh, 11,000 US stores typically stocked 40, uh, 40 varieties. Um, so this is now giving uh, the, the actually chance to, to stop stocking some of those and also for retailers to, to take a, a stronger view on what they want in their ranges going forwards. And the article goes on to say this isn't just retail and it's going into food service too. Some of the um, food service outlets that have remained open in the US have uh, knocked back their ranges by 40%. Um, and McDonald's, for example, told franchise, franchise owners this month that it would uh, keep dozens of items, including salads, bagels, off US menus for now. Um, and I think, you know, consumer choice, um, we've accepted that there's going to be less of it. And I think consumers, as you know, they're happy to be fed and happy to be able to, to get something to feed their family with. And we've spoken about previous shows about being able to cook differently and with different um, cuts of meat, for example. And Tyson had mentioned in the article, you know, because of closures that we've seen in the US plants in particular, that they haven't been able to keep the, 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 the levels of throughput going. But is this here to stay? And Wall Street Journal is saying, yep, yeah, it could be, and consumers will accept it. What What are your thoughts and how important is choice now and going forward, do you think? Yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting article. Um, I'm really torn on this. I don't quite know what I make of it because I think it's so difficult to get a proper sense of whether this acceptance of less choice is going to be a permanent change in consumer expectations and consumer behavior or whether that is still very much tied to what we have gone through and experienced during the pandemic it obviously makes absolute sense for retailers and suppliers to have uh, rationalized their ranges in the light of the pandemic and Absolutely, I would expect some suppliers um, and, and food service outlets to look at the products they normally offer and say, hmm, is this actually an opportunity for us to kind of take stock and maybe um, look at how viable some of those product extensions are? At the same time, 
you know, particularly with the move to more online shopping that we've just talked about as well. I mean, that is a, a, a channel that is very much geared towards increased choice. You know, the whole idea here is that you are sort of no longer operating within the constraints of a store, no matter how large, but that you can offer that long tail of products. I mean, that's that's obviously the, the Amazon model. So I don't know how we're going to see those sort of two different impulses reconciled in practice. And it'll be interesting to see how that rolls out into food service. The, the article touches on it, but as the UK opens restaurants and pubs this weekend, um, you know, if you're going out for a meal, would you anticipate to see a rationalised menu? But, you know, is it realistic for uh, outlets to be stocking a full range when they're going to be socially distanced in terms of number of covers in their outlet and, you know, to, to hold all of that stock and to pay for all that stock? It's a big ask. So maybe across two channels, we'll get used to seeing lesson as you say online will get the same tell me what your second pick is so my second pick this week is from the new yorker um it's called our ghost kitchen future it touches a little bit on some of the uh, the themes that we've already talked about in terms of moves to online shopping behavior or online buying and implications around choice and um, this is a piece written by anna weiner and as the title suggests, it's an in-depth exploration of ghost kitchens. Ghost kitchens, they're also called dark kitchens, sometimes are kitchens that prepare food exclusively for delivery. So they're fully equipped kitchen facilities, typically provided by delivery services such as uh, Deliveroo or Uber Eats, um, that are then leased to chefs and restaurant brands who then use those facilities to produce food for delivery customers. Dark kitchens or ghost kitchens were um, a sort of emerging but fairly marginal business model before the pandemic, but they are becoming more important. They're gaining traction fast, particularly with people not eating out so much. I mean, as this article points out, during the lockdown, every restaurant that was still operating in some way was a dark kitchen of, of some description. Um, so what does that mean for the future of the restaurant trade? And what the article does essentially is, is looking at the impact this rise of dark kitchens has had on the US restaurant scenes in various cities and also the impact that's had on local communities um, because there is a decent amount of controversy around the rise in, in food delivery and particularly the rise in, in dark kitchens. Um, there's one example that's cited in the article, which is a sort of fairly alarming incident uh, where a renowned San Francisco restaurant um, found that an imposter was offering food under their name for delivery through a dark kitchen. They had no idea they weren't offering anything for delivery and someone else had managed to uh, get their brand, their restaurant listed on an app and was very happily selling uh, food under their name. So um, obviously very disconcerting, big implications for brand reputation as well. But also it sort of flashed out an argument about the power balance between these massive delivery um, platforms that operate these dark kitchens and restaurant owners. You know, how do you as an individual restaurant even take action against something like that? How do you make sure that your brand is protected when you're one of thousands of brands uh, and virtual brands on these platforms? 
um, service fees, service charges charged to restaurant owners, also a uh, notoriously dicey issue there. There is also some increasing concern about the social impact of, um, of dark kitchens. I mean, are they potentially pushing out local businesses? Are they uh, separating us from that social aspect of, of eating out and going to restaurants? Um, and also, you know, what are the working conditions in, in some of those kitchens? On the other hand, they also speak to quite a few restaurant owners and chefs and small businesses that, you know, have really seen fantastic benefits from embracing dark kitchens and being on these platforms. It massively lowers the barriers to entry. You know, if you're a, 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 an up-and-coming chef, if you're a hospitality entrepreneur, and you can now have a presence and you can build a brand and you can deliver food to your to your customers and, and build up a customer base without needing to take on the investment and the risk of having a you know, brick and mortar presence on the high street. I mean, that's a huge potential advantage, particularly in, in the current climate. And they also speak to quite a few um, established restaurant operators and restaurant owners who have really enjoyed the opportunities afforded by those virtual brands. You know, they've used them as extensions of their existing brand and they've used them to sort of test new concepts, experiment with, uh, you know, reaching slightly different customer groups. So, you know, there are definitely opportunities to be had as well. What did you make of it? I remember when this first sort of became a thing, there was quite a few exposés, wasn't there, about, you know, oh, it's been, it's been branded as X, but it's actually not coming from the restaurant itself and it's coming from a container in the, in the car park or from somewhere totally different. Uh, and the article says, you know, many brands can be coming from the same dark kitchen. So I, I think it is very interesting and I think it all comes back to quality and transparency for few consumers because as we know you'll get them once uh, on the brand name or on the, the 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 concept but you won't get them coming back again and again if they if they're not clear on where it's actually coming from and and if it's value for money and it, as you say you know it's been really interesting to see some of these um uh, outlets and restaurants innovate over the covid period and technically the ones that have opened have become dark kitchens and it would be nice to see them hanging on to some of that trade uh, but it's always that last mile or you know or more in terms of distribution how how did they do that efficiently without killing the margins what's your second pick this week my second pick this week is from food manufacture and it's consumers go local as food purchasing changes uh, due to the pandemic and this is an article always uh, all talking about the food standards agency report uh, which was just released last week um, and the fsa working with ipsos, ipsos mori uh, have done uh, some research in england wales and northern ireland monitoring the experience and behaviors of consumers when it comes to key food risks uh, during the pandemic and what that's actually done is it's it's called out a huge amount of information and data about what consumers are thinking about food at the moment. Uh, and this data was collected both in April and May, uh, and they're going to rerun the survey um, both in June and July. So we'll get a, a further cut of the information probably into August. 
But the, the key takeouts I think are really interesting. First of all, since lockdown, there's been a continued trend towards more localised food purchasing behaviours, uh, particularly when it comes to people purchasing veg boxes and food um, from farm shops, and 35% say they're going to do that more often. And that reflects back on the conversation we had with Vince, wasn't it, um, two shows ago about how independent bakers are doing and independent butchers and how possible it will be uh, to make it to keep some of those consumers sticking and remaining uh, shopping locally rather than just go going back to the supermarkets um, where when that's uh, more easy to do uh, and people are back at work. The, the second stat in the survey shows that people say they're wasting less food and eating together more as a family and naturally we would be doing that because of uh, food service being closed but I think that waste point's really interesting um, and we're seeing more and more d data coming out about people wasting less and one of the things it talks about in the article is people are braver to eat food that's gone past its use-by date, ranging from uh, smoked fish, 17% are saying that they'll brave that, and bagged salads, 36% of people will, will brave something that passed a use-by date. Uh, and maybe, you know, in the past you think, oh, I'll just drop that in the bin because I'm popping to the supermarket tomorrow, but because our frequency has uh, reduced, then people are uh, trying to re reduce any waste. The, Picking up on our takeaways conversation just now, the data showing in this report that people are buying fewer takeaways overall when compared before lockdown. And naturally some of that is because of the availability and there's not as many takeaways open maybe. Um, but it also calls out food safety, food hygiene and financial reasons uh, and the increased cooking at home is, is stopping people um, getting so many takeaways but it also says because it's done a, a full cut of um, 16 to 75 year olds in the survey younger people say they're buying more takeaways and it doesn't give much data behind that but something that was in the back of my mind is is that because the repertoire of meals that the younger generation is able to cook is more limited I'm not sure but we've seen over the last couple of decades um, home economics coming off some of the curriculums you know this has been a real challenge for people to 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 be able to cook a variation so actually has that driven more into the, the the takeaway option and then finally unsurprisingly as we've we've spoken about pretty much for the last 10 weeks online food purchasing remains high uh, whether in relation to supermarkets or food ordering apps so there, there was nothing groundbreaking in the survey but I think it's really good to cement our views and what we've been picking up um, and actually seeing what's going to stick particularly that that shopping local point what were your thoughts I agree. Um, I think it's really important for us to have um, trackers that, that look at how consumer sentiment evolves throughout the, the outbreak, but also beyond. I mean, I really, I can't wait to see the second tranche of that data. That to me is actually the most the most interesting bit, because as you say, I think it's it's good to, to get some data around how consumers behaved in, in April and May. But in a way, that feels like a lifetime ago already. You know, we were still in a sort of throes of, of, of you know of the lockdown then and and I would say the data that's come out there from the FSA does largely echo um, I think findings that we have seen from quite a few people already I mean I can think of a, a fairly extensive survey from RAP around food waste attitudes that you know picked up that um, that, that reduction in food waste in, in the home uh, quite early on. So I think it's confirmation and it's sort of uh, helping us to kind of um, lock in some of those key themes. Now that they're doing this on an ongoing basis, though, 
I think the data is going to be fascinating to watch because we're going to see how much of that new behavior is actually going to stick. There's always one thing to ask people whether they expect to stick with a certain behavior in the future. It's quite another thing to then um, ask in you know, two months or three months time to see how many have actually done that. So I'll be very interested to see uh, what comes out when they publish the, uh, the next wave of the data. What's your final pick? My final pick this week is taking us into space. Um, it's an article from The Spoon. It's called Up Next for the Astronaut's Diet, Space Peppers. It's a great piece, really interesting, written by Jennifer Marston. Um, it's a story about the space crop production lab at NASA's Kennedy Space Center, um, where they're researching how to grow chili peppers in space. Um, that probably sounds reasonably extravagant, but there's a fairly good reason for why you might want to do that. Um, largely, they are looking at uh, ways to supply astronauts with fresher, higher quality food on their space missions. Um, and chilies are a good starting point for that effort because they can add vitamins to whatever packaged foods, uh, rehydrated foods astronauts might be consuming, but they also add some much needed flavor. And one of the big challenges that they are facing, the scientists are facing, is figuring out how to water plants in a zero gravity environment. Um, but they have found a solution that seems to work. The system they have developed is called a passive porous tube nutrient delivery system. It's very catchy. Um, but essentially what it does is it forces the water upwards to water the plants, um, which means it's much more suitable for a zero gravity environment. I love this story. I think it's really interesting just the fact that it exists. I didn't know the space crop production lab existed, but I'm very excited to find out that it does. But what I thought was really interesting actually here is that this isn't just about uh, better diets for astronauts. This isn't just about space travel. Um, it's also about potentially finding some commercial applications uh, from this research that could help growers more widely, not just those people trying to grow chili peppers or other produce in space. And this watering system that they've developed is, is an example where they reckon it could actually come in really handy on vertical farms um, because it could help reach those hard, hard to reach upper levels where, you know, sometimes growers struggle to, to get sufficient water to. And there's obviously there's a bit more interest around space travel more generally at the moment. And um, so we're probably likely to see more research efforts to, you know, develop new ways to keep astronauts well fed on their missions. But I'm particularly excited to see how much of that kind of space research is ultimately going to um, result in some really exciting commercial applications that are going to make a difference to how we grow produce here on earth as well what did you make of it could you did did you know of the uh, space crop production lab 
I, I, I didn't and I felt bad because I've, I have been to the Kennedy Space Centre a long time ago and I, I, it wasn't, I didn't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to admit I didn't really enjoy it because there wasn't much to see at that time. So I think if You missed the that, chilli peppers. That, I missed the chilli peppers, that was the problem, if the chilli peppers were there. So I was intrigued by the article and I enjoyed it and I have to admit it did make me think about, you know, um, the likes of Marks and Spencers doing more theatre in store about growing herbs and crops and that sort of thing and will that be in time as you say to take on a domestic and even potentially a, a retail slant that, that, that folks will look at this watering. What's your final pick this week? Uh, my final pick is uh, from the BBC and it's Starbucks suspends social media ads uh, over hate speech. Um, and this is the fact that Starbucks has announced it will suspend advertising on some, some social media platforms in response to hate, hate speech. And this is following in the steps of Coca-Cola, Diageo and Unilever, which have recently removed advertising from social media platforms. This is all around uh, the fact that um, there's concern by some of these major FMCG um, manufacturers that they're paying for advertising on predominantly Facebook and Instagram um, platforms and they haven't necessarily got control about the content that is around their adverts. So the right at the bottom of the article it gives a bit of context in terms of the growth. Facebook reported a 27% increase in advertising revenue over the previous years um, and the controversies around um, Facebook's approach to moderating some of this content on its platform and it's been seen to be too hands-off. This, this is absolutely fascinating because it's pulling some of these FMCG brands into a space now where it can't avoid getting involved in in politics, in uh, campaigns, you know, if some of the platforms and the social media platforms such as Facebook don't take a stronger uh, account on this, then it will challenge their advertising revenue and the big brands don't want to be affiliated with it at the moment. Social media has been a huge opportunity to connect with audiences that no longer necessarily watch TV or um, use a traditional promotional channels. But what that does have for it the traditional channels is you can share with your advertiser what the content's going to be that you're going to be butted up next to and you don't have the danger of having a screenshot of some content with a paid for ad uh, of a big brand next to something that actually is, is content which which some may find um, shouldn't be on there and shouldn't be for public consumption. The, the debate around how these social media platforms um, have a responsibility, to what extent they have a responsibility to try and moderate content um, on their platforms, I think is a hugely thorny issue. I mean, um, you know, Facebook, companies like Facebook are investing in thousands of moderators, but you are looking at a deluge of content. There's obviously a wider challenge, which is um, that a lot of these platforms reject the premise that they should be responsible for moderating something because it then takes them into a uh, rather different sphere of media and it takes them into a rather different business model as well. You're right, I don't think it's going to go away and then clearly the pressure on Facebook in particular has been mounting. Advertisers, I think, have, a, have an important role to play in all of this and I think it's interesting to see some of um, some of the names there. I mean, I wasn't surprised, for instance, to see Unilever in there. Ben & Jerry's, I think, were one of the first sort of more high-profile brands in the US to come out and, um, and sort of publicly state that they were pausing advertising on that. These 
brands have have huge budgets to spend and they're very important customers of Facebook, of Instagram, of those platforms. So um, they can make a big difference if they choose to do so. But as you say, the skill to try and moderate it is so challenging if it's got to have human eyes rather than artificial intelligence. Quite possibly. And but, you know, at the same time, I think if that is your business and you have created a business of huge scale and you uh, make a lot of money, um, I don't think the fact that it's difficult should let you off the hook. Yes, it's absolutely true that the, the scale is enormous and um, it's not going to be easy to, to fix that. But um, these are very big businesses. They have a huge reach. I think they also have a huge responsibility. Um, and part of that may well be around uh, taking a tougher stance on moderating content. Fascinating as ever. So lovely catching up with you. It's great and look forward to catching up next week with a guest. Absolutely. All right, see you then. Bye. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.